If you've got your Bibles, take them and turn with me to Judges chapter 1. I thought it's pretty good to start in the book of Judges at Judges chapter 1, right? Okay, I'm just making sure you are around today, all right? Judges chapter 1. Let me show you some headlines I saw recently, and then we're going to talk through some of these headlines and what you think about it. So I saw this headline recently, uh, for instance, Family Feud Leaves 69 Dead. Or what about this one? Powerful government leader caught in love nest. Girls at party kidnapped and forced to marry strangers. Or this one. Authorities say travelers are no longer safe on highways. And then the last one. Violent attack ends with violated victim dead and dismembered. Now, I know some of those sound like things you might find on Facebook. People are warning you against things around. But does anybody want to guess where those headlines actually come from? The book of Judges. All of those happen in the book of Judges. And some of you are like, well, I haven't read the book of Judges lately. Well, we're going to spend the summer in the book of Judges. The Judges is a book in the midst of Israel's history That is during a dark period for them. It is not the most hopeful book in the Bible. Now it has some of the most well-known stories in the Bible, right? Who are some judges that you know? Who are some names that you remember from the book of Judges? Samson, right? Who else? Gideon? That's about it. That's where we go, right? Gideon, Samson, Deborah. Jephthah, Othniel, Ehud. I know y'all had all those last couple on you right on the tip of your tongue, right? Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to be investigating this book. But today, we're going to start with kind of a a, a field guide, a a map. This is like entering the visitor center at a museum to get a lay of the land, to see an opening video of what the entire study is about. And Judges does that for us. The first two chapters of the book of Judges are introduction. In fact, it's two different introductions with two different kind of ideas. But we're going to put it all into one and ask ourselves, what is the book of Judges teaching us as a whole? Now, just to let you know, the book of Judges happens in a very specific period in the history of Israel. It's right in between Joshua and Saul. Now, in case you need to be caught up a little bit, Joshua, obviously the leader of the Israelites that took them into the promised land. But it's more than that, because Joshua was the leader that helped them to take hold of the promise that God had made to Abraham. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, God creates Heaven and earth, he creates the animals, he creates the plants, he creates the oceans, he creates the landforms, he creates human beings, puts them in on the earth in a special relationship with him, he creates man, creates woman out of man, and then in chapter 3 he gives them the ability to eat of any tree in the garden except for one, and they choose the one. They disobey God. The fellowship is broken. God gives them punishments for their sin, casts them out of the garden for their own protection, and prophesies in there that he's going to set in place a plan 
to rescue humanity from sin. Well, it doesn't get off to the greatest of starts. Brother kills brother, and before long, it has devolved into complete chaos, so much so that in Genesis chapter 6, God destroys the entire earth through a flood except for one family and begins to rebuild. By the time you get to Genesis 11, man has gotten really confident in themselves. They build a tower that they're going to get to God. God disperses them among the earth. And in chapter 12 of Genesis, we see the plan of God to redeem people from sin kicked off in 12-1 with God calling Abram from the Ur of Chaldees to a land that he promises. And through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he promises that he's going to have a people that are going to be his people, and he's going to give them a land. Joseph, the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, gets carried into Egypt because his brothers sell him into slavery. He eventually rises to the place he can protect God's people, and he saves them from famine. A few hundred years later, enough people have died that they don't remember Joseph. And Joseph's people, the Israelites, are put into slavery in Egypt, and they cry out to God for deliverance, and God sends them Moses. Moses takes them out of Egypt into the wilderness, where they are to go to the promised land. They disobey Moses can't take them. And the next leader is Joshua. Joshua takes them into the promised land. They defeat Jericho. They eventually defeat Ai. They defeat these major places in the promised land and begin to take possession of it. And we get to the end of the book of Joshua. And Joshua has led the people as God has called him. And in Joshua 24, we see his farewell speech. We'll talk about that in a minute. And in Judges chapter 1, verse 1, it says, after the death of Joshua. So that's what's on the front end of Judges. Think about the leadership you've had as Israel has told its story. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and Joshua. That's pretty good stuff, right? Those are pretty good leaders. Coming out of Judges, we will get to a book called 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, you have Samuel, who is in some ways the last judge and the first priest judge ruler of the area. He is part of anointing the king of Israel. And they don't get it exactly right at first because the first king is Saul, whose name's on the list. But the king after Saul is David and Solomon. And for all of David and Solomon's foibles, they're good leaders. And sandwiched in the middle of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Saul, David, Solomon, is this period called the Judges. Because of the way it's written, it's hard to get an accurate description of exactly how long this period was. But we know it lasted two to three hundred years in the midst of this. So imagine a time period as long as the United States has been a country. I know exactly how old the United States is because it's as old as I am. Plus two hundred. I was a bicentennial baby. Born in 1976. So I know how long it's been, right? So just imagine that amount of time is what we're talking about in this book. And here's what we see. Is by the time we get to the end of Judges, 
Israel is off the rails. In fact, the final story in Judges, where we will get to at the end of July, is one of, if not the worst story in the Bible in total with the lack of hope that is there. It is a terrible, terrible story. The last two to three chapters of the book of Judges. Now, some of you are those people that go and read the end of the book before you read the beginning of the book. Don't go do that, all right? It's one of the worst stories in Scripture. And we end the book of Judges. We get to the end of the book of Judges. And this is the ending, the verse that kind of sums up the whole book of Judges found at the end of Judges. It's Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Now, by the way, that's not a description just of America in present day. That is a description of judges. Now, here's what I want to do today. Is I want to start the journey to ask the question, how did we get from Joshua To the end of Judges. How did we move from Joshua? We're going to look at the end of Joshua in a minute. To the book of Judges chapter 21 verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Now to get there here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn back a page. To Joshua chapter 24. I really want you to have your Bibles open today because we're going to be flipping around a little bit. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, many of you have one on your phone or iPad on your app there. So get that out. Or if not, in front of you is a copy of God's Word. It'll be from the same version that I will be speaking from, the Christian Standard Bible. And so you can pull that out in front of you. And if you got the judges, to get to where we're going, you may not even have to turn the page. Because it's the chapter before Judges, Joshua chapter 24. Here's what happens at the end of Joshua. Joshua knows he's dying. He knows the end is here. He knows he's brought them as far as God wants him to bring them. He has consolidated their forces. And the idea in Judges, or the idea in Joshua and Judges, is that what God intends to happen is that they're going to have a kind of a conglomeration of tribes that are independently ruled, but that all work together when they need to. This kind of confederacy of tribes, this kind of union of tribes... And he's got them together and he's building them up. And Joshua decides before he goes off the scene, before he dies, before God calls him home, he's going to get everybody together for one last gathering, for a pep rally, for a discussion time. And he calls them all together and he says to them this, Therefore, and this is him talking to all the tribes gathered together, Fear the Lord. And worship him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods your fathers worshiped before the Euphrates and in Egypt and worship the Lord. He says, this is your last chance. This is it. This is do or die time. This is the end of the game. We're getting ready to be there. You're getting ready to have the promised land to yourself. Here's what you got to do. You got to get rid of all the stuff that was before. You got to rededicate yourself to God. Trust and serve the Lord. And then he tells them this. But if it doesn't please you to serve the Lord, then you guys got to decide that. Make a decision. Which will you worship? The God your fathers worship beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. So he says, you're going to serve the gods that were there, the gods that are here, or are you going to serve the one true God? It's your choice. 
And then one of the most famous verses in all the scriptures next, right? This verse is in my house. My guess is it's in some of your houses as well. As for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. You decide, but we're going to worship the Lord. Listen to what the people say. The people replied, we will certainly not abandon the Lord to worship our God, other gods. Now, I want you to notice something. The, the, the editors, the translators decided to, to put this here because of the emphasis that's in the original language. What's at the end of that sentence? An exclamation point, right? What do exclamation points imply? They imply force. They imply strength. This is not read as, we will certainly not abandon the Lord and worship other gods. Right? That's not what they mean. This is a victory chant from a group of people. We will not abandon the Lord. As we stand here, we will serve Him. For the Lord our God has brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, and performed these great signs before our eyes. So here's the commitment. They say, we're not moving. This is who we are. Joshua goes on and says, no, no, no. I just want to make sure you understand. The people say he protected us all along the way. We went and among all the peoples whose lands we traveled through, the Lord drove us at, before us all the peoples, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will worship the Lord because he is our God. He is the one that's responsible for this. He is the reason. But Joshua told the people, I love the word but there, because it's saying, no, I don't think you understand what you're saying. You will not be able to worship the Lord because he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions and sin. If you abandon the Lord and worship foreign gods, he will completely turn against you, harm you, and completely destroy you after he has been good to you. It's like, listen, you're making a huge decision here. Make sure you make the right one. And they say to him, no! Exclamation point again. The people answered, we will worship the Lord. So the background of the book of Judges is the end of Joshua. And he stands before them and he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. And they say, we will serve the Lord. And then he says, no, 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 no. I don't think you understand. If you get over there and you start worshiping the other gods, God's going to take it out on you. He's a righteous God, a holy God. You can't go and worship other gods. He's a jealous God. And they say, no, we understand, Joshua. We will serve only the Lord. You know what this is? This is the last night of church camp. Right? Most of us have been there sometime, right? Last night at church camp, you've been there all week, you get in your small group after an intense worship session, you're sitting around in a circle, I'm just going to describe my experience, you may have your own, girls are crying everywhere, hugging on each other, guys are fighting back the tears and we don't even know why, and we're looking at each other, and then we all start making commitments. That's it, I'm never doing anything the same again. When I get back home, Youth ministers stand before us and say, tell us, tell us, what's going to change when you get back home? Well, I'm breaking up with my boyfriend. He's no good for me. I'm going to patch things up with my parents. I hadn't been real good to them. I'm going to respect them. I'm going to honor my parents. Well, I've got a friend down the street. I'm going to share Jesus. I'm reading through the whole Bible next week. Praying four hours a day. 
I'm giving up everything. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to chew. I'm not going to go with girls who do. I'm giving it all up. You know what I'm talking about, right? Or, or, or some of you are old school. You didn't have church camp, but you had revival week. And at the end of the week, it's over. We're not doing it the same way again. That's what's happening here. They're like, Joshua, we're not going to let go. We're going to stand together, hold firm. We're going to grab the rope and hold on. And the Judges 1-1, they start out pretty well. Turn to Judges 1-1. All the way over to the next page. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord. Who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites? You see, the momentum has been kept here, right? There are people there and they're saying, okay, we've got to finish off the job. Now, here's the idea. Joshua had won the major battles for them. He had led them through the major battles. God had won the battles. Joshua had led them. But they got there and then what was going to happen at the end of Joshua is he says, each tribe, you need to go take out the people that are inhabiting your part of the land. You remember they divide the land up among the tribes. He says, now you go take your part of the land, okay? You go finish it off. We've done all the big ones. The fortified walled cities, you go with God's help. He will help you take out the rest. And so they start at the next one. The people come and they don't have a leader. Notice there's not one leader there, right? The people come and say, God, who shall fight for us? Now, we're not going to read the rest of this story because we're going to move through a couple of sections here. But basically, he tells them the Lord does a whole tribe is to go, not an individual, but a tribe is to lead them. And so they start off well. They inquire of the Lord. They said, Lord, what are we supposed to do? But Judges 2 tells us that it didn't last very long. Turn to Judges 2, verse 8. I told you it's two different introductions. It's two sides of the stories. And in Joshua chapter 2, I mean, Judges chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Joshua, son of Nun. The servant of the Lord died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance in timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. The whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. So here's what's happened. Joshua, the leader, is gone. And then this is the next... I mean... It doesn't even sound like the dirt has settled on his grave. After them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. And the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Now, doesn't that seem like a whiplash moment there? Joshua, we will never abandon God. Judges too, they abandon God. He gives us more detail about what they did. They worshipped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. Do you think the writer's trying to make a point there? That immediately they abandoned God, the God who brought them out, the God who saved them, the God of their fathers. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed to them. They angered the Lord for they abandoned him and worshiped Baal and the Ashtoreth. Now we're going to leave it there for a second. Because they didn't just 
sort of walk away in their commitment. Now, we'll notice in a moment there was a there was a a progression to their decline. But what I want you to see is they didn't dip their toes into the waters of a God similar to the God that had saved them. They went full into worshiping a God, lower G, lowercase g, who was nothing like the God who had saved them. It says there that they worshipped Baal and the Ashtoreths. Now, I know that if you've looked at Old Testament stuff at all, you hear the word Baal, and you know that it's some sort of kind of God in the Old Testament that the Canaanites worship Baal. But here's what you need to understand. When you hear Genesis chapter 1, it is different than any other literature in all of ancient world. Because the God in Genesis 1 is not one that is like us in any way. He is holy and perfect. He doesn't have to be appeased just for his own sport or pleasure. Other gods of that era, like Baal and the Ashtoreths, were gods that had to have things happen. Baal, for the people of the Canaanites, was the god of storm and fertility. And when you are an agricultural society, when agrarian work is what you do because it is what provides for your family, then fertility of the land is a major concern. I've asked this before. Anybody here grow up on a farm? I didn't. I'm just getting you to raise your hand because you won't raise your hand if I don't, probably. But my 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 great grandparents, Mama Bus and Daddy Bill, had their own farm. I used to go visit the farm, and Daddy Bill, when he talked about the farm, he talked about the farm, and he talked about the weather all the time. And when he talked about the weather, he talked about it in a way of faith that the Lord was going to take care of them. That the rain would come when the rain needed to come. But right now the rain needed to come. And they prayed for it. You think about this. Do you realize that a hundred years ago in a setting just like this, there would have been weeks when the most important prayer that they would have had prayed in their fellowship was for rain to come. When's the last time we prayed for rain? Now it's a nuisance, right? We sure didn't need it last week. We got it last week. But when you're in a society like they were, fertility was important. Now here's how they felt fertility was determined in their place. Baal, who was the god, had lots of these female companions, the Ashtoreths. And they thought that fertility was dependent upon how the relationship was going between Baal and the Ashtoreths physically. I could spell that out more clearly to you, but I'd be in danger of offending some of you, all right? And they did not have a let go and let bail policy, they thought they were responsible for kindling the romantic fire between these two gods. And the way they did that was that they went to temple and worshipped and they did not sing or proclaim the truths of Baal. They put on an act to show Baal what he needed to do. And the worshippers and the sacred prostitutes would reenact what they needed Baal to do. 
Now, if you don't think that's what's going on with the Israelites, a little bit later, he will specifically use the word for prostitute, or actually he uses the word that would really offend some of you if I use the word here for the women and uses that to compare what they're doing in the temples to that. And this is a religion that when that didn't work, and that didn't always work, because here's the reality, Baal isn't real. If it did work, it was pure happenstance. When that didn't work, they would move to sacrificing humanity, humans, because they felt like that that would appease the God. And when that didn't work, they would move from adult humans to kids. So when it says the Israelites had abandoned their God and gone to worship the Baals, that's what it means. We're not talking about dipping our toe in a semi-Jewish religion. We're talking about contrary to the character of God all the way. Verse 14. So you understand why this next verse happens, right? The Lord's righteous. That word's not there, but it is. Anger. Burned against Israel and he handed them over to the marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them and they could no longer resist their enemies. They forsook the Lord. They followed the people around them and they surrendered their freedom. They move into the new area. They see these people and what they're doing and they think maybe we ought to try some of that. And my crops aren't doing exactly what I want. And they say, well, in this land, if you want your crops to really grow, you got to go to the temple of Baal and you got to perform this action. And if that doesn't work, you got to do this. And the Israelites are, well, I need my land to be fruitful. I need it to grow. And so I'm going to go to the temple. And it says that God's anger comes on them and they so like to the people that they acted like them. And God said, if you want to be like them, I'll let them control you. They forsook the Lord. They followed the people around them and they surrendered their freedom in God. One commentator has called what happens in the first two and three chapters of the book of Judges and what really extends to the rest of the book, the Canaanization of Israel, as in they have become the Canaanites. Exchanging the one true God for the gods of the Canaanites. And what happens is, in the end, they eventually exchange one king in God for another. Verse 15. When the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them. Man, that is a terrible verse, if you're an Israelite. They have gone from the one for whom the Lord fought to the one whom the Lord fought against. He brought disaster on them just as he promised and had sworn to them. He is being faithful to his agreement. He is being faithful to his covenant. So they suffered greatly. Verse 16. And yet the Lord raised up judges. That's where we get the word. Judges. Men and women in this passage, in this place, in this book, who come as salvation for the people. You see, the book of Judges is characterized by this pattern where the people of God sin. And when they sin, they are put into servitude. They suffer. And in the midst of that, they cry out to the Lord and say, God, save us. God, we're sorry. God, we didn't mean it. God, help us. And God sends a judge and saves them. Verse 16, the Lord raised up judges, men like 
Gideon, men like Samson, men like Jephthah, men like Ehud, women like Deborah. The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders. But they did not listen to their judges. And here's that word. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. They quickly turned from the way of their fathers who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their fathers did. Verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. There's the cycle. Sin, servitude, suffering. They cry out to God and God saves. Then you get to verse 19. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their fathers. Following other gods to serve them and bow to them in worship, they did not turn from their evil practices or their, and I love this word, obstinate ways. So here's the picture. It is a cycle. So the Israelites are going in this cycle. They're in a whirlwind, if you will. That they are consistently going in a cycle of sinning, God sinning, suffering, crying out to God, God saves them. But the picture the Bible gives us is that it is not staying at the same level. That with every generation, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Until you get to the end of the book of Judges, to one of the most horrific stories you have ever read. And it says, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So that's the introduction to the sermon today. Only got five points left, all right? The question I want to answer today is, how did they get there so quickly? How did they get in two chapters From we will not abandon the Lord to complete walking away from him. And what the ramifications are, what we can learn from them. There are just three things I want us to see today. And we will go through these pretty quickly. But I want us to I want us to give proper time to it. Okay. And the first thing is this that we see in this scripture is that partial obedience is disobedience. Now, we're going to have to dig back into parts of the chapters that we abandoned. And we're not going to read them all. I would encourage you to go back and read them all. Because it looks at the beginning, they cry out to the Lord. Lord gives them a victory. It looks like at the beginning of the chapter 1 of Judges that everything's going well. But then you start to get these stories. And there's a phrase that is used again and again and again and again to describe what's going on. So in Judges chapter 1, Judah is the one that is supposed to go. They go and they win, they win victories. They win a couple of victories. But then in chapter 1, that's why it's not going to be on the screen, but I want you to see this. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, go back and read it later. Chapter 1, verse 21, it says, At the same time, the Benjamites, another tribe, did not drive out the Jebusites. Verse 27, at the time Manasseh failed to take possession of Bashin and Tanakh and their surrounding villages. Because the Canaanites were determined to stay. Verse 29, at that time Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulon failed to drive out the residents of Kitron. Verse 31, Asher failed to drive out the residents of Akko or Sidon. 
Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the residents of Beth Shemesh or the residents of Beth Anath. You see a theme there? So they were supposed to get into the promised land. They won the big battles. And then Joshua says, go to your place and throw them out. Now, let me just ask you a question. We'll deal with this as the kind of the weeks go on. I'm not going to deal with it today. We'll deal with it as the weeks go on. But what was the command of God to the people of God that were going into the land? To take the land and do what to the people? Destroy them, drive them out, get them gone. Now, we can talk about why, and I'll just give you a little bit. Some people think, why is God so harsh there? Here's the reality. Two things. First of all, these people that they're driving out are some of the most cruel people in the history of the world. One king gets driven out by the Israelites, and he says he deserves it because of his own cruelty. Secondly, God knew what would happen if they stayed. And so God tells them, get them out. Wipe them out, drive them out. And it says in scripture, they could not drive them out. Some places it is interpreted to say they would not drive them out. What is inherent in the text, what we see in the text, it was not that they did not have the ability. They took down Jericho. What they had was a decision not to do what God had called them to do completely. They took residence without driving out. Partial obedience pastor i know i should forgive them but i just you know if i'm in that relationship that's not good for me i i I won't have anybody else i meant to get on just for a few minutes and to look at something and something came on my screen and it was something inappropriate and i clicked and now i just can't stop if i were totally honest at my job i don't know that it would be there next week But everybody else I know is already involved in that. So what would it hurt? Now, we're barely getting by as it is. I don't see any way we can afford to give. Well, I got everything right on all of these issues. But that one issue, I'll just have to overlook. I'm going to say something. I almost didn't say it. It might get me in trouble, but I'm going to say it. I've been here 11 years. I get in trouble all the time, right? I saw a statistic the other day that, that, that worried me and bothered me. A national polling organization asked a question whether we had a responsibility to take care of refugees as human beings. Now, I just want you for a minute to pull out your political understanding of everything else in life. Does the Bible require of us to be people that take care of those that are in need? Absolutely yes. Okay? And if you have a problem with that, you take it up with Jesus, not me. Do you know the group of people in America, by the highest percentage, said no, we do not have a responsibility? White evangelical Christians. Now, I'm not talking about political decisions. I'm talking about humanity. Because I know some of you right now in your mind are racing to debate me in your mind about what you think I'm saying. I'm not saying anything politically. I'm talking about humanity. And when we as Christians allow things of the world to influence how we view people made in the image of God, we have mistaken what we're supposed to do.
Well, that's what my political party teaches. So. Partial obedience is disobedience. I, I don't I don't want to debate what the government ought to do, but I can tell you what believers ought to do. Christians, churches, individuals ought to do. That's to take care of people. You see, what happens is we are so confident in what we think is right that sometimes we develop blind spots to areas that we've excused. And what happened with the Israelites is the Benjamites said, we don't have to kill them all. We'll leave a few. And partial obedience is disobedience. Sometimes even we see initial success with what we're doing and we think, see me there, God's blessing us. But God was not blessing them with the victories he did in the book of Joshua, but in the book of Judges when they failed to do what he called them to do. It is momentary gains that leads them by the start of chapter 3 that they are in bondage for eight years. They left bondage in Egypt, spent 40 years in the wilderness, get to the promised land to within a year or two being in bondage for eight more. Partial obedience is disobedience. When I was growing up, I talked about Mama Bush earlier. Mama Bush used to tell me they had an apple tree out there. And she'd say, I want you to check. She'd let us, when grandkids, great-grandkids would come, we'd get to pick the apples off the tree when they were ready. And she'd always tell us, now, if there's one with a bad spot, don't stick it in there. If you find a bad spot on an apple, don't put it in the basket. Why? One bad apple can spoil the whole bunch, right? Partial obedience is disobedience. There's an African proverb that I love. It says, little leopards become big leopards. Big leopards kill. Right? You ever seen these people that have like baby tigers for pets? Now, excuse me if you are one of those people. You know what we call those people? Crazy. That's what we call those people. Because baby tigers become big tigers and big tigers kill. Partial obedience and disobedience. Second thing we see in this passage. Amnesia leads to apostasy. If you don't know the word apostasy means, it means a walking away from the Lord. There's, there's a verse in chapter 2 that, that gives this perfectly. After them, this is verse 10, second part of verse 10 in chapter 2. After them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. They didn't remember. Chapter 2, verse 1, and we won't read it all. He gives them what he had done for them. He calls them an angel of the Lord. He sends an angel to them to say, listen, I want you to get this message because you're on the verge of making a mistake. And he tells them, listen, I'm the one that rescued you from Egypt. I'm the one that brought you to the promised land. I'm the one that gave you victory as I promised you. I'm the one that has kept my covenant from the very beginning. I will not break it. It is me that has given you these victories. Do not forget me. I have carried you from Abraham to Joshua. I have delivered you from enemy after enemy. I am the Lord your God. And it says in scripture, a generation rose up that did not remember. They lost their faith. And they decided they needed Baal more than they needed God. 
Martin Luther said every sin springs from a heart of unbelief. Now, here's the thing that I want us to kind of understand for us, for those of us in this room, because many of us in this room are people that have lived our lives and we're trying to remember, we're trying to do what God has called us to do and we're trying to step forward. One thing that we must be intentional about is taking it to the next generation. And I don't know what their discipleship plan was in this book, but whatever it was, it didn't work. It's a phrase that I've used in this church many times, especially talking to youth parents. And that is that if your faith is not real to you, it won't matter to your kids. They can see right through a superficial, I go to church because I'm supposed to. It's my contractual obligation. It's my social understanding. They see right through that. And if it's not real to you, it won't matter to them. Sometimes people claim the verse, like, train up a child in the way that it should go, and in the end he will not depart from. We've talked about the book of Proverbs before. That is not a guaranteed promise. It is a general understanding of the way that life works, and it is true most of the time. But I can tell you another Proverbs that's the inverse of that, and that is, don't train up a child in the way they should go, and in the end they will depart. Now, again, it's not 100%. There are some kids that come from terrible homes that end up serving the Lord. But by and large, you have a large responsibility in putting your kids in a position to make a decision for themselves. It also reminds us you can't decide for your kids or your grandkids as much as I would love to. I can't. Here's the third thing from this passage. When you choose to not follow God, you simply choose another king. You and I were created to come under authority. We were created to be ruled. And when we choose to walk away from the creator king, you're just choosing a different king. And you exchange the God who saves for gods that enslave. That's good. I almost messed it up, but that was good. You exchange the God who saves for gods that enslave. Look at Judges 3.8. This is where we'll end and then we're going to bring it all to a close. This is what I talked about in just a minute. It's when the first judge gets called. Judges 3.8, it says, The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to King Cushan Rishathaim of Aram Naharim. And the Israelites served him eight years. And when you decide not to follow God, you're just choosing another king. Whether it be your appetite, Feeding your insecurity, living in fear, comparison, lust, greed, consumption, your family, money, reputation, or anger. You're just serving a smaller king. The book of Judges is a place that we're going to have to look throughout here for glimpses of hope. Because it's, we're in chapter 2 and 3. Do you remember what the spiral looks like? It gets worse, right? You think, man, we're already bad enough. Where are we going? Worse. But in the midst of those, I want us to remember a couple of things. First of all, our God is willing to save. You know what I love about that whole chapter too? I don't love the part where they're going their own way. I don't love the part where they're making their own decisions. I don't love the part where they're going and worshiping the Baals. But I love the part where it says in verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them from their power. I love the part in verse 18. It says, whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies. I love the fact that Jesus is coming and that God is merciful in the midst of this Old Testament passage where he says to them, I'm willing to save if you'll but cry out. And when they cried out, he saved. 
I told you the end of the book of Judges is one of the most difficult stories in all of Scripture. Perhaps the most horrific story. But that's not going to be our last sermon in this series. I'm going to give you a preview of the last sermon. Because the last sermon is going to be about a book that's not even in Judges, but happened while Judges was happening. Because there were things happening while Judges was happening that aren't in the book of Judges. And it's about a little girl named Ruthie. And what I love about the story of God's redemption is this. When it looks like it is the absolute worst, there's a family who's going to have a son, who's going to have a son, and his name will be David. And while all this mess is happening, God says, I'm going to take a girl and a mother-in-law that have lost everything. And I'm going to bring the Savior out of their line. There's always hope. Because the Lord is willing to save. Let's pray together.